Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. On Commons People this week, Joe Biden jets in. The United States is back and democracies of the world are standing together to tackle the toughest challenges and the issues that matter most to our future. What to expect from the G7? It's the first time any of us really have been able to to see each other face to face uh, since the pandemic began. And And what can Labour learn from the President? I think there's a lesson there for the Labour Party about coalition building um, and uh, looking to people who haven't voted Labour and listening and engaging in a different way. Hello and welcome to Commons People. I'm Arj Singh and joining me this week is Ned Simons. Hello. Hi Ned and we've got Labour's Shadow Foreign Secretary Lisa Nandy. Hi Arj. Hi Lisa, how are you? Um, I am the first Shadow Foreign Secretary in history never to leave Wigan. So I've just been complaining about it before this podcast started. Things have got to start changing. I was promised foreign travel. (laughs) (laughs) Well yeah, hopefully soon. But in the meantime, Boris Johnson is on his way to Cornwall to host the leaders of some of the world's wealthiest countries for the first in-person G7 summit since COVID hit. The Prime Minister will meet US President Joe Biden face-to-face for the first time for a summit expected to focus on the global recovery from COVID, climate change and global issues from taxing internet giants to tackling Russian aggression. But Johnson is under fire going into the meeting amid a massive Tory rebellion over his plans to cut aid spending from 0.7% of national income to 0.5%. Let's listen to the PM's defence. You shouldn't believe the the lefty propaganda, uh, Mr Speaker, that you hear from people opposite. We're spending £10 billion. We've actually increased, we've increased... You, we, all they want to do is run this country down, Mr. Speaker. Run this country down uh, when we've in, when, when we've increased when we've increased spending on girls' education alone to half a billion pounds, uh, almost half a billion. That is a fantastic sum of money to be spending in difficult times, Mr. Speaker. We should be proud. Uh, Ned, to be fair, given that some of the other G7 countries spend a lot less on aid than the UK. That issue probably won't dominate the summit, but what are some of the most interesting political stories that might emerge? I think actually what might be most interesting is the kind of the personal dynamic between Biden and Boris. Um, Because if you think about in the US, how Boris is essentially just seen as a mini Trump, really, without much more nuance than that. Um, And how kind of Joe Biden and the Prime Minister get on probably will set the stage for the next few years of the UK-US relationship, I think. Um, And... You know, watching how Boris can pivot from being quite a supportive international leader of Trump to Biden is going to be fascinating. I mean, it's kind of much even more of a kind of extreme move than Blair had to do from Clinton to Bush. Um, 
So I think we'll probably see into our climate change a lot. I think he's cottoned on to the fact that there's a shared agenda there between what he's kind of trying to say and what the Democrats might want. Um, I wonder how much Biden and actually kind of Democrats back in the US and Washington buy it. If you think about one of the main things that this government wants to do is this UK-US trade deal, and Democrats are really concerned about Northern Ireland. Um, and everyone has to remember that it's not just the White House that signs up any trade deal, it's Congress as well. I mean, people from Nancy Pelosi down are really, really not happy with Brexit and then the impact, I think, on the peace process. So how I think the kind of personal relationship emerges from this first meeting might have quite a big impact on, on, on that going forward as well. Yeah, Lisa, um, how, how important is their first face-to-face meeting as, as leaders? Uh, Joe Biden's not um, thought of as the biggest fan of Boris Johnson. No, but he's also not somebody who bears a grudge or is known as particularly petty. And he's someone who will want to make a success of what is his first global international summit as well. So I think that he'll be very keen to try and establish a better relationship with Britain under Boris Johnson. And it is absolutely critical. Um, Ned is completely right. This is probably the most historic and important G7 summit in a generation. Uh, There is a lot riding on it, not just for the world, but for Britain's interests in particular. You know, if we don't get a grip on COVID, we don't lay the foundations for COP26 and a proper plan to tackle climate change, the economic fallout for the UK, as well as the environmental damage and the health consequences for the world, just appalling. So this huge amount riding on it and this meeting, this bilateral meeting between Boris Johnson and President Biden is going to be a big deal. It could be the moment where we reset after the disastrous Trump years where British ministers fell over themselves to cosy up to Trump with absolutely nothing of note to show for it. Not a trade deal, not any justice for Harry Dunn, not any... Uh, attempt to rejoin the Paris Agreement, um, the US acting as a rogue player on the world stage, and um, and very little to show for it in the UK. This is the moment where that relationship has to be reset. You know, you mentioned in the introduction that Boris Johnson is going into this with the less than ideal scenario of a rebellion on his own benches about a key plank of global Britain, the decision to cut international aid, but he's also going into it embroiled in an argument with the European Union about the Northern Ireland Protocol five full years after Britain voted to leave the EU. This still hasn't been resolved. So in that meeting, he's going to have to do a couple of things. The first is that he's going to have to reassure President Biden that the UK is strongly committed to upholding the Good Friday Agreement as an article of faith um, and that we will be an ally in the fight against global corruption. The UK was the only G7 country to try to block the agreement on a global minimum corporation tax and the City of London is still home to the dark money that sustains the Putin regime amongst others. But he's also going to have to show that he's got a level of ambition for these talks and for this summit. At the moment, the UK is in the unfortunate position of hosting the talks, but not leading them. And he needs to show President Biden that when he says he wants to vaccinate the world um, by the end of 2022, when he wants to set us on a path to climate safety, that that's not just vague ambition, that he actually has some semblance of a plan for delivery. Yeah, I mean, could you get more specific about your kind of asks for this summit? You mentioned a plan on global vaccinations and a need to reset relations with the US. Do you think actually Johnson needs to apologise, for example, for his derogatory remarks about Barack Obama's ancestry that 
Joe Biden is known to be very unhappy with still, I think. I mean, I think there's no question that there are certainly people around Joe Biden who are still very, very bruised by those comments that Boris Johnson made. Don't forget, of course, that a lot of the key people in the Obama administration have come back to work for Joe Biden. And they remember those comments well. And certainly in the conversations we've had with with Democratic friends and allies and those going into the Biden administration, that has been mentioned on a number of occasions. But look, I think the bigger issue is whether Boris Johnson can prove that Britain uh, is also turning the page on the Trump era. He's got to prove that we are a reliable, solid partner, not just uh, an actor that um, is retreating from the world stage, that is determined to go it alone, that is providing a disruptive influence, particularly in in relation to the Ireland and Northern Ireland, you know, these should be, Ireland should be one of our closest partners and allies. And I think that he's got to show a moment of resetting there. But then in terms of the G7 summit, there are, there are three big things that he could do and should do that would absolutely deliver, not just for, for the agenda that he's got around global Britain, but for the levelling up agenda as well. So he should set out a credible plan to vaccinate the world. That means ramping up production capacity in places where it doesn't exist. It means getting support to countries where they can't even administer the vaccine, even if they had it, because the health infrastructure isn't there. And the IMF says that's not just a moral issue, that, that represents the biggest return in modern history, because if rich countries invest, then the, the economic fallout will be so much more limited and we'll see a huge return on that investment. He should be pushing for a global minimum corporation tax at 21%. This is money that is leaking out of our communities that could be spent on creating good jobs in parts of the country that haven't seen them for 40 years, the parts of the country that voted for him in 2019. And those real tangible commitments to tackling climate change ahead of COP26, these are really important, not just because the environmental disaster that is awaiting us, should we not act now, is enormous, but also because the path to net zero creates 1.7 million green jobs. And you know, these are in places like Grimsby and in Hull and in Hartlepool, where you know, in Grimsby, the wind energy investment has helped to cut the benefits bill. It's taken people off unemployment benefits. According to the government's own advisors, it's cut that by 60% since they started investing in clean energy there. So this is potentially a game changer where the Prime Minister could actually make good on global Britain and levelling up two things that so far have amounted only to empty slogans. But this is the moment where we could start to actually see real change. Yeah, interesting. And you've mentioned the, the kind of Brexit dispute at the moment over Northern Ireland. Do you think Biden, do you think Boris Johnson could ask Biden to possibly mediate those talks? They don't seem to be getting anywhere. We've heard just today talks between David Frost and, and Maros Sefcovic on the EU side have broken up without any agreement and some quite, you know, strong words on both sides. Could, could Biden step in there and, and kind of maybe help forge a deal? Well, the truth is that he's already playing a role and the Biden administration has been following this keenly. You'll remember that um, the, the Northern Ireland was the only foreign policy intervention that President Biden made before he was elected. Um, and he has been talking to 
uh, EU um, member states about this. He's been talking to our friends over in Ireland. He's been talking to the Prime Minister about it. And there's no question that he'll play a role in it. But in the end, the only way this gets resolved is through goodwill and creativity on both sides. And, you know, von, uh, Ursula von der Leyen has already um, been in to see the Prime Minister. We need some goodwill from the EU itself and from the European Commission. But we also need to see that from the Prime Minister. And the, I speak to, to counterparts around the world on quite a regular basis, sadly by Zoom, because I'm not allowed to go anywhere. But um, they, the, the number of times that people have said to me, the Prime Minister just seems to be missing in action at the moment that, that it matters. We saw violence flare up again um, in Belfast recently. And there was just a sense that the Prime Minister just simply wasn't there. My colleague Louise Haig was urging him to convene an intergovernmental conference that had support from all sides in Northern Ireland and from the Irish government. And yet the government just wasn't willing to step up and show that level of leadership. And I think Joe Biden will be asking for that from the Prime Minister. You know, th this is a mess that he created. He said it wasn't going to be like this. Um, and I think everybody, even privately, the government now understands that this is a, a situation that they've got to sort out. Yeah. And the government's line it, it has been, oh, well, we sort of didn't realise how bad it would get, which is it's just well. utter <laughs> abject nonsense. I mean, it's, it's just pure and utter, you know, drivel lies nonsense Ooh. they knew exactly what they were doing and they made big big promises around it but as always with brexit that they, they were much more interested in defending their own interests in the tory party than they were in thinking about the interests of the country and if i sound angry that's because i am you know, we've seen violence flaring up again. We've seen the Good Friday Agreement, which was one of the most important landmark agreements, so carefully calibrated, um, you know, so difficult to achieve, so long in the making with so much riding on it. We've seen all of that put at risk. And for us in the Labour Party, the Good Friday Agreement is an article of faith. It's one of the, the legacies that we're most proud of. And to see all of that squandered because the Prime Minister just simply can't tell the truth. It just seems to me that is a, a very, very shameful moment for yeah. him personally. What, what do you think Biden will make of that excuse? Or do you know how that's going down, possibly? I know Labour have some links with Joe Biden's team. Yeah, I don't think anybody um, thinks for a moment that there is an excuse for where we've ended up. But all minds now, including ours, are concentrated on how we, we move this forward. It, you know, there's a lot riding on this for the people of Northern Ireland, for the whole of the UK, uh, and for people in Ireland as well. And, you know, on a geopolitical level, for Britain, this matters too. We can't afford to be in a situation where we're constantly at war with our closest neighbours, because you've seen over the last few months since President Biden was elected, that the idea that you can have a, a, a very antagonistic relationship with the EU but then you can have a very strong relationship with the United States is for the birds. And, you know, look at the rise of China and the difficulties the government's had dealing with that. Look at the increasingly aggressive behavior by Russia. We've got a very unstable situation in the Middle East and particularly in relation to Iran. We've got major, major challenges that we need to deal with. And that's before you even get onto this week's agenda, which is COVID and climate change. We need friends, we need allies in the world and we spent 10 years 
trashing those relationships, gaining a reputation as a, a deal breaker rather than a deal maker. We've got to turn that around this week. Yeah, and just finally on this, uh, I know you're in Wigan, Lisa, unfortunately, but have you all... As as yeah, as, as a Yorkshireman, I was going to say. I mean, I'm not taking lessons from someone on the wrong side of the pen. Um, I was going to say though, even though you're in Wigan, do you or um, Keir Starmer or any of the Labour team have any plans to meet any of Joe Biden's team while they're over here? So we were hoping to when he was originally going to come to London, and we've been discussing that with them in the embassy about whether it'd be possible. Um, because originally I think he'd been over hoping to be over to meet the Queen first and then um, he's going on to, to Brussels for the NATO summit afterwards but the plan has changed it's a fairly tight um, conference given Covid some of the world leaders aren't even be able to attend in person so the plan is that we'll go over to the United States in September um, when we hope that things will have got back to normal um, or at least some kind of normal um, and unlocked somewhat um and and do a, a proper series of engagement so far what we've been limited to zoom calls which has you know been been better than nothing we're very close to the democrats they're our sister party but um we're looking forward to meeting in person when when we can great and that will that be you or Keir or both of you or so at, at the moment we're just working out the details um Keir Starmer's diary is quite something as you can imagine but um well I'm I'm certainly going over in in early September and we're hoping to arrange a meeting between Keir and Joe Biden and some of the key figures in his administration like Tony Blinken and others quite soon um like we got we managed to get around a lot of world leaders very very quickly when Keir was first um, elected. The, one of the only benefits of Zoom is that you get to Zoom into world leaders' houses and get to have a nose around their kitchens and their living rooms and meet their families. So we've we've done we've done a lot of that engagement work, but obviously President Biden wasn't elected until October, so we, we there's still a, a missing link in the jigsaw for us that we're looking to fill. Yeah, well, Lisa, as you kind of intimated there, summits like this are always a bit of a nightmare for the opposition as the government gets to hog the airwaves and the leaders in this case. For several days um, and it's not great news for Keir Starmer at the moment with one pollster this week suggesting his ratings have plunged to the same low level as Jeremy Corbyn's did at the same stage of his leadership of Labour. Starmer is also facing the prospect of losing another so-called red wall seat with the Batley and Spend by-election now just weeks away and amid reports that Labour was losing the support of Muslim voters in the seat, Starmer pressed Boris Johnson on the Israel-Palestine conflict at PMQs. Let's listen. Mr Speaker, the G7, bilateral discussions with President Biden and the possibility of a new government in Israel also provide a real chance to restart a meaningful Middle East peace process. The appalling violence recently, which killed 63 children in Gaza, and two children in Israel shows just how urgent this is. Ned, how worried should Labour be about Batley and Spen? Um, I think they probably should be worried, and I think they probably are, although Lisa, of course, you can you can tell us. Um, I think, you know, right now a three and a half thousand majority isn't isn't that that good, even no matter how good the candidate is. Um, and then you've got the kind of the Reform UK, which was the kind of Brexit party, aren't standing. There was an independent candidate who stood in 2019 and he got about six and a half thousand votes from the right and he's not standing. And then also you've got George Galloway, 
coming at Labour from the left. So I would be a bit worried if I was them. Although, like I said, Lisa, you can um, you can tell me if I'm wrong. Uh, Lisa, I know you're probably going to say, you know, it's going to be a difficult battle and blah, blah, blah. But the, the interest... Blah, 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 blah. blah. <laughs> but the interest... Skip to the end. <laughs> the, no, the interesting thing for me is that the Tories are continuing to sort of throw themselves fully into a culture war. And it does appear to be helping in seats like Hartlepool or Batley when there's little between the parties on the economy, when you've got things like the furlough scheme going on, do you think Labour should be engaging more in that culture war and perhaps taking the fight to the Tories a bit more and defending the party's values a bit more? Or would would that be counterproductive in seats like this? Well, look, I mean, we're we're obviously going out to fight for every vote. I spoke to Kim this morning and, you know, all, all of these seats matter to us enormously. They matter not just because of the politics of how you get to number 10. They matter because, you know, take Hartlepool, for example, where we lost the recent by-election. You know, this is this is a place where once we were us and they were them. And it hurts when that relationship is broken. And, well, you know, Arj, I've been talking about this for a very long time, but... You know, this has been this has been decades in the making, and it's something that doesn't get turned around overnight. But it, it hurts us when we see those seats going Tory, and so um, it, it's a big deal for us. But Batley and Spen in particular, you know, with um, with Joe, like Joe was a friend of many of us, and so it's personal as well, and it really really matters. And we love Kim, and we want to see her in Parliament. Um, delivering for people in Batley and Spen. So we, we, we're we fighting for every vote. We're not taking a single thing for granted. But I think this stuff that we can learn as well from, you know, thinking about how over in the United States, the Do- Donald Trump was prosecuting the culture wars long before Boris Johnson cottoned onto the idea and started to take his leaf out of the Trump playbook. And so our friends in the Democratic Party have been dealing with this for a very, very long time. And we've been talking to them about about how. I think Biden's election is really interesting. Of course, the US isn't the UK. They have a completely different electoral system for starters. But one of the things that Biden was absolutely firm on is that he stood up for the values that he believes in and that he cares about. So, you know, he didn't give an inch on issues that Trump was trying to use to divide people, whether it's LGBT rights, you know, trans rights in particular, whether it was the Black Lives Matters movement, he was absolutely unequivocal about his support for anti-racist campaigns um, and an action for justice. And he, he, you know, there's a there's a philosopher called Michael Walzer who wrote a, a piece called The Historical Task of the left and he says that is the historical task of the left you have to be able to stand in the center and on the left at the same time and he says that may be complicated but it is our historical task and by that he means i think what we saw playing out with joe biden joe biden never allowed himself to be diverted from his core message which was that he was going to deliver real economic change for ordinary americans who'd watched decades of economic decline with jobs leaving towns outside of the big urban centres and young people going with it and the spending power and the declining high streets all things that will be familiar to you as someone from Yorkshire and are familiar to me sitting here in Lancashire he never allowed himself to be diverted from that but he absolutely didn't give an inch he stood up for his values and when they were under attack he stood up for those minorities that were under attack 
as well. And I think that is a, 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 a strategy that, that works here in the UK as well. I've certainly found being the MP for Wigan, people don't like nastiness. They don't like division. There is a ceiling to how much division people will tolerate, particularly during a pandemic. And I think Boris Johnson could come very unstuck very quickly if he carries on trying to prosecute these culture wars. I mean, the, the statue was a really good example recently, I think, where, you know, as my colleague David Lammy said, the only person in the country who seemed to be talking about tearing down the statue of Churchill was Boris Johnson. And here there was just a bit of a feeling that he'd gone mad. Like, why was he talking about a statue all the time when people were like worried about their jobs and whether their kids were going to get their GCSE results and, you know, things that really matter to people. So I, th I think he's, um, I think he's going to find that he runs out of road with that. And I think we've just got to be absolutely firm and unequivocal and honest with people about what we stand for. Yeah, I mean, on that and, and not, not giving an inch, as, as you say, on, on your values, I'm, I'm surprised, and apologies if I've missed this, honestly, um, but I'm surprised, for example, that Keir Starmer hasn't come out a lot stronger, for example, against the England fans booing players taking the knee, for example. Well, I think he's been, I think he's been pretty outspoken about, about Black Lives Matters and... Um, he, you know, there was a there was a a time. I'm sort of I'm struggling to remember when it was, but every day feels a bit the same in lockdown, and we're back in lockdown here in Greater Manchester. But, um, you know, there was a time a few months ago where there was an opportunity to show support for that um, taking the knee, and he did. And so I think he has. I think he has said said things about it and wanted to to sort of show his support and solidarity for that. But. Um, you know, he also wants to be talking, particularly this week, about the absolute urgent imperative to get the vaccination rolled out around the world. And he wants to be talking about creating green jobs and he wants to be pushing Boris Johnson on that. And you, you mentioned um, Israel-Palestine. One of the reasons he was so keen to raise it today is because the United States is absolutely crucial in what happens next in the Middle East. And for, for a lot of Palestinian people, who don't support Hamas, who don't want to see a resumption of the violence, there has got to be an alternative. And with the Trump annexation plans, with the illegal settlements, with forced evictions, they're seeing the facts on the ground change and they're starting to wonder what the prospect actually is of a two-state solution. We're really committed to a two-state solution in the Labour Party, but that has to be meaningful. There has to be a meaningful process to get there. So this was the key week when actually we need to see our Prime Minister stepping up and taking some action on that and I think that's you know when you talk about not giving an inch on your values it means being absolutely unequivocal about those things and I think that finds a lot of support across the country when you know there's a there's a sort of idea a sort of caricature of people in so-called red wall areas that that we you know we don't care about climate tackling climate change we don't you know we we, we don't like anti-racism protests I just don't recognize that at all from my own community I get more letters about the environment and climate change than I do about any other issue and there is a consensus to be built across this country on these things if we're able to stand up for the things that we believe in I think that's what Keir's been doing I think that's absolutely what Kim's been doing in Batley and Spem and the Tories seem to think that's a mistake but that's because they profoundly misunderstood the sentiment in places like Wigan yeah, interesting. Ned, I mean, what, what do you make of Lisa's um, kind of assertion there that Keir Starmer is not giving an inch on Labour values? Because plenty on the left would criticise Keir Starmer for things like wrapping himself in the flag 
and and for other matters that I can't immediately recall. <laughs> yeah, I, th I think I think they would. Although perhaps some of it is um, perhaps a little bit factional. Um, sometimes criticism is from uh, people who are much more supportive of Corbyn and then maybe of Starmer. So I think some of it might come from that. Um, and I think Lisa also you spoke about you know um, Biden kind of standing by what his values are and people. It might be that people are more aware of Joe Biden's values, given that he's been around for such a long time. Um, whereas Trump is quite a new, a new guy on the scene. I mean, given having only been elected what, like 2015, so that could be a problem for Starmer that people just don't know him as well, so are harder to immediately understand what his what his values are. Um, and it's quite hard to tell that story when in opposition, particularly in COVID and when G7 is happening as well. Um, actually, one thing I was going to ask you, Lisa, was kind of bit not connected but about foreign policy and how that works for voters I mean how do you connect foreign policy discussions to things like a by-election because they can seem quite abstract I wonder if there's if there is a way that you try and do that or is it just really tricky so I think you've basically hit on the biggest problem with foreign policy that has led us to where we are as a country um, which is the gulf between what happens at a global level and these sort of huge affairs of states and what happens at a local level and the lives that people live. And this huge gulf has grown up between the two things that has meant it's cost us consent for what we do overseas and what we do globally, but it's also meant that we're not delivering for people on the things that matter in their own lives. So just give you an example. Um, one of the things that I've been dealing with a lot over the last year is the potential collapse of my local football club Wigan Athletic which was basically sold to some financiers in Hong, some gamblers in Hong Kong that pretty much seemed to throw it away for a gambling debt on the other side of the world and plunged us into administration um, and all of the global systems that were set up to prevent that, that were supposed to protect the fans and protect the club, just absolutely failed to do that. The fans were last in that process, not first. And the more that I look at what, you know, what's happening to people in places like Wigan, football, fraud, flooding, these are all problems that are felt locally but can only be solved globally and connecting those two things back up and making sure that people are driving what happens at a global level seems to me that's one of the major challenges and one of the important things about the election of Joe Biden is that he absolutely sees that so he's coming to the UK this week with a very clear agenda for the G7 which is about protecting democracy but he doesn't just see democracy being under attack from authoritarian states. He also sees that a great cause of that instability comes from the inability of leaders to be able to sol solve those global challenges that are causing such problems for people at home. In America, that is a lot to do with the trade model that they have and the trade model that China has. You know, China is making lots and lots of products very, very cheaply paying their own workers at very low rates so they can't afford to consume what they produce and then they flood the world market with those cheap products that are absorbed by countries like America and to a lesser extent Britain which then costs jobs and depresses wages and living standards here as well we've got to take action on those things we can't afford to be cas casual about them or to somehow think that this is not an agenda 
that governments ought to be pursuing and that's the situation that we've had for far too long so when I talk to people you know whether it's in Hartlepool where I was recently meeting with some of the veterans um, or in Batley Spen where I'm going shortly to meet people who are working for one of the big global employers these are the things that I'm talking to people about our relationship with China has more bearing on what happens to people in Batley and Spen than any high street grant that could be doled out from um, Whitehall or Westminster and that's you know in the end if we can't connect those two things back up we're going to have real problems I mean for me that was a lot of the path to Brexit was about people looking at the system and feeling this does not deliver for me it does not protect me and it has no legitimacy as far as I'm concerned and we've got to change that. Yeah well on that note it's time for the quiz. Woo woo! Um, <laughs> yes, well done. Thanks for that, Lisa. Normally Paul's on. He's, he's away this week and he'll get, he gives a little, little cheer, so thank you. I got none uh, on Paul's quiz last time, so I'm <laughs> aiming for one this time. The bar is... I'm showing yeah. a, a new level of ambition well, here. Let's hope we can both get zero points, shall we? <laughs> well, yes. After the government intervened in a row over cricketer Ollie Robinson's racist and sexist historic tweets, a very serious issue... Uh, this week's quiz, which won't be very serious, is on politics and cricket. So just shout the answer if you know it. Um, question number one. Which former international cricketer is currently the political leader of a country with close ties to the UK? Um, I'm going to say Imran Khan. Yes, correct. Oh, my God. What? Yeah. <laughs> right, I'm out. That's it. I'm quitting while I'm ahead. Yeah, You've definitely Imran, won already, Lisa. Imran Khan of Pakistan. Okay, we'll and carry then, on. But like, basically, Ned was being nice because he totally knew the answer. <laughs> didn't say it. Thank you, Ned. Appreciate I'm, it. I'm glad you got that one, Lisa. It might have been, a, you know, a shadow foreign secretary. This is all embarrassing. This is there's nothing <laughs> that's going to be dignified or helpful about this to me. <laughs> um, David Cameron once managed to majorly offend the locals when going to watch a cricket match at Headingley Stadium in Leeds. But why? What? I didn't even know that. I don't, don't know. Did he? Uh, um, I didn't know David Cameron knew where Leeds was. Um, what? What would he have done? Maybe. Did he, like, did he leave early, or like? Did um, he like take his own pims or something? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> if you don't, if you don't know, you, you'll you'll know when I tell you. You um, the wrong. Did he say it was in the wrong? City or I don't no, know. No, he he said he said he was caught saying um, we just thought people in Yorkshire hated everyone else. We didn't realise they hated each other so much. Oh yeah, I remember that. Yeah, which yeah. Um, as a as a Yorkshireman, it, it's it's completely true. But you're not allowed to say it unless you're from Yorkshire. <laughs> you're from Yorkshire, you never mention it. <laughs> Uh, I just this is nothing to do with cricket this quiz it's supposed to be about cricket but it's actually about politics well yeah it's always about politics it's about politics and cricket um anyway the final question of, of what what i was sold it as <laughs> final question so ned can draw it or lisa can, can oh, uh score double points um who was the only post-war British Prime Minister to have actually played first-class cricket? That's sort of professional-ish. Like professional cricket? More or less. Okay, give us a give us a sort of ballpark, like, are we talking about since I've been alive or before? Um, before. 
Oh my God. Mm. Where's Nick Thomas Simmons when you need him? He writes books about all these people. <laughs> You're not allowed to message him and ask, that's cheating. Uh, I have absolutely no idea. I can't think of, like, I'm just uh, running through all the men who've been Prime Minister. None of them look like they could have played cricket. No. But you might as well have a guess. There's not that many, is there? I don't know. I mean, it's, I'm going to say something really stupid. Like, I mean... Uh, <laughs> I mean so, like, Harold <laughs> Wilson didn't play cricket, did he? I mean, that's just crazy. No, it's not Harold Wilson. I mean, How popular are any Prime Ministers? Yeah, why could... <laughs> why could something that actually happened in our lifetimes? This is just ridiculous. All right, sorry. It's uh, Alec Douglas Home. Oh. I totally, I mean, I, I'd actually forgotten about him when I was running through the list in my yeah. head. So. Well, he yeah. Sound, his name sounds like a cricketer. Yeah. I have, to, I have to say, Arj, that Paul's quizzes are better than this, to be honest. Oh, come <laughs> on. Sorry, but I don't, I don't think you can blame me and Ned here. I think it's the quality of the questions. <laughs> yeah. He's going to love that. I hope he doesn't hear this. Um, but the interesting thing that there that you about you forgetting about Douglas Home Um Interestingly, he was only anyway. well. He was only PM for 363 days, which is the same as the number of runs he scored as a cricketer. How oh, good is that? Oh. Lovely fact. <laughs> um, when, when did you Google that? <laughs> <laughs> well, congratulations, Lucy! You've won the quiz despite <laughs> slagging it off. I might have to take your point away. <laughs> well done. <laughs> Um, on that, unfortunately, that's all we have time for this week. Thank you to my guests for joining me and make sure you subscribe to Commons People on all the usual channels and please be sure to leave a review. The War Zone is having a break this week with Paul on holiday, but do subscribe to get your daily dose of what's happening in Westminster at bit.ly forward slash the hyphen war hyphen zone. And we'll just leave you with Tory MP Danny Kruger struggling to control his puppy Pebbles, who landed him with a £120 fine after causing a stampede of deer in Richmond Park. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.